two is where we're starting out here tonight. Welcome back. Good to have you here tonight. Trust your week is going well. How about this for a day? Any complaints? Please keep it very quiet. (laughs) Beautiful day. It doesn't get a whole lot better than this. Wow. Praise the Lord. And a good day to come together, study the Word of God. I, I love First and Second Thessalonians. You know, these are the, the kind of the eschatological last things, uh, books. Uh, I mean, we have other emphases in the New Testament, of course, but uh, great emphasis here. Well, let's uh, get started with a word of prayer here uh, this evening. Lord, again, we thank you for the privilege to come together and study your Word. I pray it would be profitable as we... Uh, Connect the highlights and uh, connect the dots here as far as what Paul is saying uh, to the Thessalonians and ultimately to us as well. Uh, Ask your blessing on all the classes, all the teachers, all the workers. Uh, Thank you for all the labor, uh, labors that are going on in your name. Uh, May it be for the edification of your people. Come in our evening to you now. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, we are Wednesday session one and... We don't have that first one. It didn't show up. So let me tell you, it's in your book, right? (laughs) You've got a book, page 62, top of the page here. We're living in the church age. That's where we are. And the next major event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture, which we considered at some length last night. And, of course, uh, following the rapture will come the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord judgment. Uh, this, uh, what is called the 70th week of Daniel. That's why we know it's a seven-year tribulation period, going back to Daniel's and a lot of study involved in that. But just uh, for the moment, take my word for it. Uh, the the seven-year tribulation follows the rapture, which concludes at the second coming of Jesus Christ, and then he sets up his kingdom. Well, let's pick it up. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, we have talked about the rapture, First Thessalonians four thirteen through 18. Uh, concluding with comfort one another with these words. And now we pick it up, uh, chapter 5 and verse 1, page 62. But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. Uh, The transition word, but in the Greek, is the prepositional phrase peridea. Uh, Paul commonly uses this phrase, and it's important here. I know you don't know Greek, but it's important, okay? You know a little Greek? He's a guy who lives down from the butcher shop, you know? Anyway, but uh, Paul commonly uses this phrase to introduce a new subject. Note, uh, he does so repeatedly in 1 Corinthians. This underscores that there is a distinction uh, from the rapture subject just covered in chapter 4. And the day of the Lord subject he is now going to cover in 1 Thessalonians 5. What I'm saying is when he says peridah, he's introducing a new subject, Okay. There's a distinction between what he's talked about in the rapture and now what he's going to talk about in reference to the day of the Lord. Uh, Skip the next couple paragraphs. Uh, The times is the Greek word chronos, from which we get the English word chronology. It refers to chronological periods of time that are are to elapse prior to the day of the Lord that ushers in the second coming and the kingdom. The word describes the duration of times or the idea of how long it will be before the consummation of the last day's events surrounding the second coming. The word seasons is kairos uh, and essentially means the kinds of times. It refers to specific turning points in redemptive history. So in view is the duration of the time periods and the specific turning points that will usher in the last day's events in which Israel is the central player. Okay, let's go to the next page. <clears throat> let's go to the second verse, verse Thessalonians 5.2. For you yourselves know perfectly. Boy, when you know something perfectly, you know it very well, right? Yep. You yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Obviously, he had emphasized this point with them. Uh, And so the reason you did not need to write to them concerning the times and seasons is because they already knew perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Kind of hard to uh, gauge that, right? Oh, there's what I was looking for. Hey, way to go. Good job. You brought it up from the depths of wherever it was. Anyway, thank you. Uh, so anyway, um, they have the, the, the coming as a thief in the night. You, you really can't gauge that, right? Uh, you don't know when it's going to happen. That's the, that's the exact point. They knew perfectly well this is how it's going to come in. Uh, no forewarning comes as a thief in the night. So they understood this accurately. They were in the know concerning how the day of the Lord would come. 
It's good for us to realize that too. Uh, we say, well, we're looking for the signs of the times. It comes as a thief in the night. Uh, know this perfectly well. We're not going to see it coming. As, now, we know the trends. We see the day approaching and so forth. But as far as uh, specifics, we don't know. All right. Uh, n- skip the next couple paragraphs there, those big paragraphs, and uh, then uh, come to the next one down there. The day of the Lord is a phrase that denotes God's open intervention into the affairs of this world by which he demonstrates his lordship. There were various occasions in the Old Testament in which God intervened in this way, demonstrating his lordship. All those historical occasions were really a little foretaste of the coming eschatological end times, day of the Lord, in which God will demonstrate his lordship in an unprecedented way. I say, the day of the Lord means the day of the Lord. It's the day when his overt intervention, his lordship is clearly on display in a worldwide way. And so that's the point. Definition. The day of the Lord refers to God's special interventions in the course of world events by which he demonstrates his sovereign lordship over all. There are historical occasions of this reality as found in the Old Testament. And then there is the ultimate last days eschatological day of the Lord, which the historical occasions all pointed to as a harbinger. Often in the same context, we see both of these realities side by side. So note what I have here. There we go. Uh, We have have historical occasions that are called the Day of the Lord, back in the Old Testament, certain certain times of judgment. These all were kind of uh, uh, pointers. Uh, They were types, if you will, pointing to the ultimate eschatological uh, end times Day of the Lord. And, and we see, you know, first Isaiah 13, 6, historical. And then Isaiah 13, 9, eschatological. Joel 1, Joel 3, uh, Obadiah, you know. And so really even pretty close proximity, we see both of these brought out. The one's pointing to the other, ultimately. Okay, page uh, 64. And let's come down to 2 Peter three ten, which is kind of an important verse in the sense... Okay, can you help me out? I don't know what my deal is here. Crashed? Okay, we'll read it. Second Peter 3.10. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. So we already have that emphasis in 1 Thessalonians here, chapter 5. <clears throat> and uh, Peter's reiterating that same principle. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. That's one end of the spectrum. Uh, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So we have uh, the full spectrum here. It comes as a thief in the night, the time of judgment, but then it concludes with everything being burned up. Well, when does that happen? Well, as you read through the scriptures, you come to the end of the book of Revelation, it happens after the kingdom. Everything is burned up. So the, so the day of the Lord is bracketed first on this side as coming as a thief in the night and then at the end with everything being burned up. So it includes really a 1,007-year period of time. It takes in the whole kingdom period of 1,000 years, but also the seven-year uh, tribulation period. So uh, know my diagram there. Oh, hey, we're back up and running here. This is good. Ah, very good. So here we are. Uh, we're living in the church age. We are not in the day of the Lord. That's his whole point here in uh, emphasizing what he's bringing out in this chapter. In Second Thessalonians, when we get to that tomorrow night, we'll really reinforce this. But uh, we're waiting for the rapture. This is our blessed hope. You say, we're not looking for the Antichrist. We're not looking for the undertaker. We're looking for the upper taker. We're looking for Christ, right? And that's where we are. But Following the rapture will come the day of the Lord. It comes in as a thief in the night, what we call the night phase, the, the judgment, the dark phase. But it also includes the blessing phase, which will follow uh, the coming of Christ, setting up his kingdom. This whole thing is called the day of the Lord. It comes as a thief in the night, concludes with everything being burned up. And then, of course, everything goes into the eternal state, a new heavens and a new earth. But this whole section here is really the day of the Lord, as outlined by Peter here in 2 Peter 3.10.
Okay, jump down to the bottom of the page on page 64. Because Jesus used day of the Lord terminology to describe the 70th week of Daniel, also called the tribulation period, we know that the day of the Lord judgment corresponds to the tribulation period. So uh, we could do a, a study there, but take my word for it. Christ connects day of the Lord to the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation period. All right, page 65. Second paragraph there. The key point of 1 Thessalonians 5.2 is that this coming day of divine intervention, of divine judgment, will come as a thief in the night. That's the key point. And uh, that is, it comes totally unexpectedly, Right? It will come as a surprise upon the whole world. Uh, it cannot be predetermined. It is inevitable but unpredictable as far as the timing. Uh, the whole point is that there is no forewarning. That is the point. And uh, the world is totally oblivious, right? I mean, if the rapture happens tonight and all of a sudden the day of the Lord smacking them in the head, they will not know what hit them. Uh, it will come as a total thief in the night whenever it happens. Uh, verse 3, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Uh, note the uh, HCSB, which is the Holman Christian Study Bible, uh, the note there. It is notable that peace and security are what are often cited as currently needed in the world, and especially in the modern state of Israel. When people think they have this peace, sudden destruction will come upon them. So this is interesting how he describes this. When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction. Page uh, 66. Um, I'm going to skip a couple of those slides. You see it? No, I'm going backwards. Am I going backwards? Okay, I don't know where I'm at here. I was expecting Daniel here. Oh, there it is. There it is. I'm looking at the top heading. That's my problem. Okay. Uh, there is a gap period brought out in, in Daniel. Uh, and uh, I guess I should now back up one more here. There. Uh, there's this gap period. Uh, and uh, we see during this gap period certain things that will take place. That's what Daniel 9.26 is about. We, we have... Uh, the crucifixion of Christ, and then there's like four things that will take place in this gap period. And then what uh, concludes the gap period? Well, that's what we're talking about here in Daniel 9.27. He, Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with many, that is Jews, for one week. And so that's really what brings to initiation the day of the Lord. So note, I uh, jump. Then, uh, skip the next paragraph there. I submit to you that the Bible is teaching us that the Middle East tensions will continue to grow in intensity. It will become a burden for the entire world. And then out of Europe, the revived Roman Empire, Daniel 9.26, will come a man with a seven-year plan, and he will come as a man of peace. He will supposedly have the answer to the Middle East crisis. And it will seem as though true peace and security have come to the region which in turn will seem to have ramifications for the entire world. And the world will applaud, saying, all is well, safe and peace, uh, peace and safety. They are excited about this. Uh, note, uh, let's go to the next page, page uh, 67. And uh, second paragraph there, and they shall not escape. The judgment here is inescapable. They might try to run, but they won't be able to hide from the worldwide judgments of God. This is sinners in the hands of an angry God for sure. This marks the start of God's judgment pangs, which will only build in intensity and severity. The day of the Lord is a global reality. It is the judgment of the entire world. There is no place to escape. The world in its entirety is under the judgment of God. Revelation 3.10 speaks of the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So uh, we note in Matthew there that there are, it is described in terms of, of birth pangs, the beginning of sorrows, literally birth pangs. And you know, when a woman goes into labor, things get more intense as you go along. And that will be the description of the tribulation period. It will be grow in intensity as we get closer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, note that next paragraph, but note the pronouns here. 
when they say peace and safety, destruction comes upon them, and they shall not escape. This is in contrast to, but you, brethren, in the next verse, and so on. This judgment will not come upon the church-age saints because we will already have been raptured as seen in chapter 4. The day of the Lord judgment falls on unbelievers as clearly seen in this verse as noted by the pronouns. Clear distinction between they and you and so forth. Verse uh, 4, but you, brethren, in contrast, but to contrast word, but you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. In contrast to the they, them of verse 3 is the you, we of verses 4 and 5. Here in verse 4, there's a contrast of spheres or realms. The brethren are not in darkness. We're not in darkness. Darkness is the realm that Satan rules over. Uh, He blinds the minds of unbelievers. They are in darkness, and they belong to that realm, but that's not the realm we belong to. Uh, Jump down to verse 5. He continues the thought, you are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So he's making a real strong emphasis here. Not only is there a contrast of spheres, there is also a contrast of natures as seen here in verse 5. Not only are we in the light, we are also sons of the light. Sons of the light, sons of the day. Speaking of the nature of God's children. We don't belong to the the night, to to the darkness. Uh, Come across to uh, page uh, 68, and uh, right under the Colossians 1.13 reference, and then to reinforce it uh, some more, Paul says, we are not of the night nor of the darkness. As believers, we belong to a different sphere. We have a different nature. Those in darkness who belong to the dark side face the prospect of the dark day of the Lord's judgment. Those in the light who are of the day will not be overtaken by God's judgment. Instead, we are headed for the light of God's kingdom to come. So uh, note uh, the distinctions here between the uh, unbelievers and the believers. Unbelievers, the day of the Lord comes upon them as a thief in the night. Believers know accurately about the the, uh, day of the Lord. They don't have a clue. Uh, They say peace and safety. We are not in darkness. Sudden destruction comes upon them. Day of the Lord, not overtake as a thief. They shall not escape, sons of the light, day, uh, not of the night or or darkness. So we see the contrast being drawn all the way through there. Uh, Go down to the bottom of the page. The sequence is first the rapture, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and then the day of the Lord which follows, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I say, in one sense, it's as simple as chapter 4 precedes chapter 5, right? The rapture, chapter 4, precedes the day of the Lord judgment, chapter 5. Uh, So the day of the Lord judgment comes without any forewarning, and the fact that believers uh, will not be overtaken by it necessitates their removal prior to it. Page 69, at the top of the page. The contrast between the believer and the unbeliever is stark in terms of sphere, nature, and destiny. Paul then goes on to challenge the believer to live according to who we are as sons of the light and sons of the day. And that's where he now goes. Uh, Verse 6, Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. The word sleep here is a different word than what Paul used metaphorically for physical sleep. uh, As used here in 5.6, it refers to those who are spiritually indifferent. It refers to moral lethargy and spiritual insensitivity, which is characteristic of the unsaved. Note the very warning here indicates that it is possible to some degree for believers who are of the day to function like those who are spiritually of the darkness, of the night. It is possible for believers for a time and to a degree to lapse into spiritual indifference. And that's what he's exhorting them not to do. Uh, Skip the next paragraph. In contrast to being spiritually sleepy, Paul says, but let us watch and be sober. To watch is to be spiritually alert. Uh, Come down to verse 7. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Paul is making an analogy between the natural and the spiritual. Sleep is a natural activity of the night, and most commonly those who get drunk do so at night. These activities belong to the nightlife in the natural realm and also by way of spiritual application. Okay, uh, 
page 70. Uh, note uh, we've got uh, four contrasts here. Two kinds of people. Light versus darkness. Day versus night. Awake versus asleep. Sober versus drunk. So he's, uh, he's drawing out these contrasts. Verse 8. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. Skip that next paragraph. Paul's emphasis on alertness and soberness fits well the imagery of a Roman soldier who is on guard. A Roman soldier could be put to death for going to sleep at his post. In addition, the soldier would have on his protective gear, which Paul uses now to make a spiritual analogy. Uh, Be sober is in the present tense, indicating an ongoing responsibility. However, putting on the armor is in the aorist tense, indicating this to be a fact of action, uh, which is not to be continually repeated. Okay, let's go to the next page, and uh, page 71. And uh, note at the top there, faith and love are mentioned together as they are bound together in a package where you find one, you find the other. Next paragraph. While the breastplate protects the heart, The helmet protects the head and the mind. Here the helmet is said to be the hope of salvation. The word hope denotes a certain expectation. Salvation in context refers to deliverance from the day of the Lord, wrath, which will come upon the world after the rapture. The Thessalonians already had eternal life. I mean, that's clearly established right at the beginning of the book. Uh, They already had eternal salvation from sin, as Paul deduced in 1.4, where he affirms their election. The salvation in view here is eschatological. Our blessed hope is the glorious appearing of Christ when he comes for the church, as Paul brings out in Titus 2.13. So Paul says this reality is to serve as a protection for our heads, that is, our minds. Put on the helmet, which protects your head, which protects your mind, in a sense. The Thessalonians had been agitated about this topic. Their thinking wasn't clear, and it left them shaken and confused. Paul says the hope of deliverance in the rapture is like a protective helmet around the mind. And indeed it is. And I've known people who were very concerned about what's going to happen. Am I I going to be, you know, left to go into the tribulation? Uh, I mean, that's really not a very comforting thought, by the way. I I don't quite understand those who teach that we're going into the tribulation. Um, I don't understand from a theological standpoint, but I surely don't understand it from a, why would you even want to go there? (laughs) Uh, But they kind of seem to have the idea, well, the the real sincere ones will, you know, stand up or whatever. Anyway, uh, stick with good sound theology. Uh, Note uh, the next paragraph uh, here, the next verse, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, there's a context to what he's saying here. Uh, Verse 9 connects back to the day of the Lord that comes as a thief in the night in verse 2. In this context, the day of the Lord is the coming time of appointed wrath. Uh, That's the whole context. God's wrath associated with the coming day of the Lord. The world has an appointment with God's wrath, but we as believers don't. Rather, we have an appointment with deliverance. We will be delivered out of the world before this time of wrath comes upon the world, as spelled out in the book of Revelation. The idea is that the world is on a collision course with God's judgment day of wrath, but just before it hits, we will be delivered in the rapture. Uh, Skip the reference. In the scriptures, there are several aspects of God's wrath, which because of Christ's death for us as believers, we will be spared from them all. You know, wrath is not a point for us in any way, shape, or form as, as God's people. Now, discipline, yes, but wrath, Christ took all of the wrath. On the cross, there there is no wrath targeted towards us as as his people in any way, shape, or form. And so uh, note these different aspects of God's wrath. Wrath is now revealed where people are given over to a debased mind, vile passions in their depravity. There is a point where God in his wrath just lets people go. I think we see that in our society, Uh, even today. uh, Tribulation judgment, the the great day of his wrath, going to be poured out upon the entire world. We're living in the age of grace. Whosoever will can come. The the door of grace is is still wide open. Still be some grace even in the tribulation period. But the wrath of God is going to fall. It's going to be the worst time in the history of the world, according to Jesus Christ in Matthew 24. And then the second coming judgment, the wine press of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. 
uh, in relationship to the second coming. And then eternal torment, the wrath of God poured out in full strength, tormented with fire and brimstone forever and ever, as stated in Revelation 14. So we have various aspects of God's wrath, but we're not appointed to this. I mean, I just don't see how you get that at all, that somehow believers are are a target of God's wrath. That doesn't make any sense theologically. So note, uh, we are not appointed for this. Uh, Page 72, under the... um, Eternal torment there. In view in this context is the coming day of the Lord, wrath, otherwise known as the tribulation period or the 70th week of Daniel. It refers to this seven-year period of judgment that will come upon the whole earth. The emphasis is that the church is taken out and then God's wrath falls on the world. This was the same emphasis in 110 where Paul said Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. There is a consistent emphasis in Scripture regarding deliverance followed by wrath immediately coming upon the earth. And, uh, you know, we got the scripture there as it was uh, in the days of Noah. Uh, You know, first uh, Noah is put into the position of deliverance on the ark. Then the judgment falls. That's the pattern. Um, Let's go down to my next uh, slide here. We're back to the slide here. And uh, I don't know that I need to go through this. We've already talked about it. Here's where we are. The, The rapture next. Then the judgment. That's uh, what's coming, and that's what he's dealing with here. This is why they were all shook up, thinking that they are in the time of judgment, in the day of the Lord. Let's go to the next page and uh, verse uh, 10. 1 Thessalonians 5.10, Who died for us, whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Interesting verse. Uh, The basis of our salvation whether it be in the general sense from the penalty of sin or in the specific sense from the day of the Lord judgment, the totality of our salvation is on the basis of Christ's death for us. That's why we have deliverance, is because Christ died for us. Who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Uh, Now, skip that next paragraph. There is debate on how wake or sleep should be understood. Uh, Some understand it as saying whether we are physically alive or dead, and others understand it as saying whether we are spiritually alert or spiritually lethargic. Many commentators take this as a summary of what Paul already taught in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, and therefore take it as referring to being physically alive or dead. They argue that in both contexts it speaks of being uh, together, and in both contexts it speaks of comforting one another. Uh, for them, it seems that Paul, uh, that for Paul to now say whether you are spiritually alert or spiritually indifferent would be inconsistent with his call to moral readiness in the surrounding context. But I don't take that view, uh, and there's some good reasons for it. Uh, note careful consideration of both the most immediate context and the grammar leads me to the preferred view that indeed spiritual alertness or spiritual lackness is in view. I don't say this dogmatically, but there's a strong case to be made for it. And really, really most of the commentators in, that I read on a weekly basis agree with what I'm calling the preferred view here. Um, go down to the bottom of the page. So I take it that the preferred view is to understand this in the ethical sense, whether believers are spiritually alert or whether they are spiritually lethargic. If they are true believers, they will all live together with the Lord. The rapture is not an event only for the most spiritual believers, right? If you're a true believer, you're going, even if you've gotten lax. And we don't want you to get lax, and the warnings are there not to. But if you're a true believer, you're going to go and be with the Lord. Uh, page 74, 1 John 2, 28 exhorts us to abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. The thought is not that some of them will be left behind. No, they may be ashamed, but they're going to be there. All believers are going to be there. 1 Corinthians 3.15 brings out that a believer may lose all their rewards, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. So it seems to me that Paul is making a special point to encourage these believers who are already struggling with certain concepts concerning the rapture. They were already shaken concerning those who had died and whether they would be left out. Now that Paul has strongly emphasized living watchfully and soberly, Some may well jump to the conclusion that if they don't, they'll miss out on the rapture. Into that context, Paul asserts that all true believers, whether properly vigilant or not, will be there. That is a grace relief for all with such struggles. 
Don't get careless and lethargic, but even if you do, if you're a true believer, then you're going to live with Christ in the rapture. I think this is a necessary emphasis because there are always sensitive believers who tend to doubt their salvation. That's true. I I know this as a pastor very well. (laughs) I deal with it on a regular basis. Uh, This is a reinforcing statement or of security for the believer. Even when you go through times of struggle, you are secure. Verse 11, therefore comfort one another and edify one another just as you are doing. Uh, Skip the next three paragraphs there. Uh, Go down to the fourth one down there, just before the insert. And then Paul concludes this section with a word of encouragement saying, just as you also are doing. It's good to tell people what to do. Constructive challenge is good, but it should always be balanced with positive encouragement wherever possible. People need encouragement. Paul has presented plenty of challenge here, but he also includes encouragement, just as you are doing. Page 75. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.12. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Now, in the preceding section, Paul has exhorted the Thessalonians to watchfulness in light of the Lord's coming. In this section, we have the application of watchfulness in practical reality. The key section of the book is 4, 13 through 5, 11, which deals with eschatology involving the rapture and the day of the Lord. However, surrounding that eschatological, meaning last things, emphasis, is much instruction on how we should then be living. Uh, it's not like he just wants to you know, satisfy our, you know, our imagination or what's coming uh, no, there's a, there's a reason. There's a, there's a practical emphasis. I say prophecy always has a practical emphasis. It's never given just for sensationalism or merely to satisfy our curiosity. There is always a practical challenge that goes with it. Prophetic truth is to motivate us to godly living. Page uh, 76, the word urge, uh, skip those first two paragraphs there. The word urge in verse 12 is not a forceful apostolic mandate but rather a respectful request that a friend might make. It's a brotherly appeal. It is addressed to the brethren, indicating it's addressed to the uh, congregation in general. Paul is urging them to properly regard the leaders in the church. For whatever reason, often there is tension between members of the body and those in leadership. I don't understand why this ever happens, right? (laughs) But it does sometimes. Uh, It's just kind of part of leadership, by the way. You know, you have a problem with any of your leaders in your life, you know? Governmental leaders, you know, church leaders, in the home leader, whatever. Uh, just kind of goes with leadership sometimes. Often we talk about biblical leadership, which is a very important doctrine, but there's also doctrine of biblical followership, right? Biblical followership is what is in view here. In the New Testament, there are three principal words for leaders in the church. Uh, note uh, here these uh, elders. Those biblically wise and spiritually mature, overseers, those having God-ordained spiritual oversight and authority, pastors meaning shepherds, feed, nurture, protect the flock. And uh, then, you know, you look at these references here in Acts, uh, sent to Ephesus, called for the elders. And so they're called elders there in verse 17. Same group down here, uh, Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd. So we see these three words in close proximity here, referring to the same group of people. Okay, page 77. It is assumed here that qualified leadership is already in place. In light of that, Paul urges them to properly recognize these leaders. To recognize is literally to know. To know them is to properly appreciate them. Paul then goes on to describe these leaders. Notice he speaks in reference to those, which is plural. We do not see a one-man show in the New Testament in terms of leadership. We see a team concept which allows for inner accountability even among the leadership unit. Next paragraph. Who labor among you. The word labor emphasizes hard, strenuous work to the point of sweat and exhaustion. Uh, One who is not interested in intense work should not seek to be an elder. Uh, Next uh, paragraph. Notice these uh, labor among you. They are not aloof. They are amongst the people. They interact with them. They are in the trenches of life with them. Uh, But Paul says uh, they are also over you in the Lord. Spiritually, all believers are equal. We're all brothers and sisters, right? Absolutely. Uh, We all have the same salvation, all share in the same Holy Spirit, etc. However, there are differences of giftedness and roles. Over you has in view 
the God-ordained functional role of leadership in terms of their spiritual life. Okay, let's go to the next page, page uh, 78, uh, uh, under that first paragraph. And then Paul says, they admonish you. To admonish you means to warn. It literally means to put in mind. Next paragraph. Uh, This is difficult. People often don't like to be admonished. Pride gets in there. But Paul says the congregation should realize this is part of the elders' responsibility. They warn people of consequences and admonish them regarding right and wrong. No wonder Paul urges them to properly recognize these leaders. In effect, he is saying they should realize this is part of their God-given job. So what do the spiritual leaders do? Well, uh, they labor among you, they are over you in the Lord, and they admonish you. Uh, These are the three things that he brings out here in this context. Verse 13, And to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. To esteem means to consider, think, or regard. It is to hold in high regard. Next paragraph. And to be esteemed is, uh, they are, are to be esteemed in an attitude of love. Next paragraph. The reason given for this loving esteem is, is because of their work. Elders have the most important job on the planet. Bottom of the page. And then Paul adds, be at peace among yourselves. One of the most difficult things for spiritual leaders is when God's people fight among themselves. That is a great hindrance to the work. Uh, Top of page 79, William MacDonald says, the number one problem among Christians everywhere is the problem of getting along with each other. Is that true? Uh, Let's put this to the test, what William MacDonald says here. He says, this is the number one problem among Christians everywhere. The problem of getting along. Yeah, might be right there. Every believer has enough of the flesh in him to divide and wreck any local church. Come down under the Ephesians 4.3 uh, reference. Biblical fellowship properly responds to spiritual leaders in this way. Number one, recognize, know, that is appreciate, esteem, highly regard, value, and be at peace among yourselves. You know what that's called? That's called a mature church. That's called a, that's, that's, that shows some maturity when, when this is happening on a regular basis. All right, we're going to have our fellowship time now in the coffee room. Uh, let me pray and we'll go there. Lord, we thank you for the word. And indeed, uh, we think about uh, end times and we think about uh, the rapture, which will indeed be followed by the day of the Lord judgment. Thank you that you have not appointed us to a wrath as your people. But uh, we can have clear instructions as we are waiting the rapture, how we should then be living, uh, what you are expecting out of us as, uh, as a congregation of people in regards to those who have placed in leadership roles and uh, what our attitudes are to be as, as biblical followers of those who you have ordained to, to lead. And uh, so, Lord, again, we thank you for your word and pray now that you bless our fellowship and uh, thank you for the refreshments and the hands that have uh, Uh, prepared it for us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. See you back here at 730. Okay. I think we're going to get started and let everybody filter on in here. Hopefully we can get through the end of the chapter. What do you think the odds are? Nope. We'll see. If we don't, we'll finish tomorrow. Uh, Not a vote of confidence there. (laughs) 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we are on page uh, 79, so let's, uh, let's get rolling here. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, and you know who that means. I'm just teasing. Comfort the fainthearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. Again, note the congregation is addressed when Paul says, brethren, to exhort means to entreat or encourage We have noted the congregation is instructed to properly appreciate their leaders and to be at peace with one another. Now we find they are to hold each other accountable and to minister to each other. So this isn't just the work of the spiritual leaders, right? Congregation has a part here as far as holding each other accountable. Uh, Note, uh, skip that next line there. Warn those that are unruly. Warn is the same word translated monish in verse 12. It denotes... Uh, confrontation that seeks to bring about correction. Next paragraph, the word unruly was often used in a military context to speak of a soldier who was out of order and did not keep ranks. It referred to one who was disorderly and insubordinate. Okay, let's go to the next page, page 80, second paragraph. Comfort the faint-hearted. 
the old King James had feeble-minded instead of faint-hearted. Feeble-minded is not really accurate. The word translated faint-hearted in the New King James literally means the little-souled. The little-souled. It refers to those who are discouraged, depressed, or despondent. They feel inadequate, fearful, and lack courage. Uh, They need some comfort, right? And there are the folks among us that need comforting care. Uh, The word comfort literally means to speak alongside. It is to speak kindly and tenderly. It indicates soothing, comforting words. This is truly biblical counseling. And I want you to note it is set firmly in the context of body life ministry. The exhortation is addressed to the whole congregation, not just to the leadership. So we ought to all be seeking to do this. When uh, you have little soul people who are discouraged and down and they need some encouragement. We need to be there for them. All of us need to assume that. All right, page 81. Be patient with all. How's this for a catch-all emphasis? Be patient with all. I I often uh, quote this. Be patient with all. Just a reminder. Got to be patient with everybody. I suppose that includes me, right? We all need to be patient with me too. Um... This is a good body life directive. We ought to hang this motto over the doorway of the church, right? Be patient with all. In the body, there are all kinds of people with all kinds of problems. Be patient with all. As they say, everyone you meet is fighting some kind of a battle. Be patient with all. And that is so true. Patient is literally long-tempered. It means we don't lose our temper with people. We put up with a lot. Verse 15. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Dealing with problem people in the body can be challenging. Of course, fellow believers should never treat each other in an evil way. Note the word evil there. See that no one renders evil for evil. But it does happen. It does happen. The word evil denotes that which is base, mean, wicked, harmful, or wrong. You see, believers still have the flesh, and they can still do evil when the Spirit's not controlling them. Sometimes believers do evil things. I wish it didn't happen. I wish I never did anything wrong. But it, but it does happen. MacArthur says, bottom of the page, For Christians, the severest and most painful disappointments come not from the wickedness of the unbelieving world, but from other sheep within the church. Often that is true. Page 82. <clears throat> if we are mistreated, the temptation may be to get even or strike back. The most natural flesh thing in the world is to be vindictive and seek revenge. You do me and I do you back. I mean, that's the flesh. That's the world's way, tit for tat. But that's not God's way. He says when people mistreat us, we must not render evil for evil to anyone. We must turn the other cheek. We must respond with grace, not in the flesh. Easier said than done. But it is our calling as Christians how we should respond. So body life instructions... What are we, how should we then live? Warn the unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, not rendering evil for evil, pursue good for all. Uh, that's how we are to be living. Someone says, just preach to me about the rapture and eschatology. These are the things that interest me. But don't preach to me about the grind of body life. But that is to miss the point. Paul brackets rapture truth with how we should then live as we await the shout. Body life is where we live as we wait. And God is very concerned with how we carry on. We are his body, his representatives on earth, and he wants us to reflect him well. Right now, we are taking a test in this life. The exam will be graded at the rapture, and we will be rewarded accordingly. The test is over body life and how we carried on while waiting. I really think that's the big deal. Christ is building his church, and how we carry on in, in reference to the church is really the big exam on Judgment Day. Okay, page 83. Come all the way down to just above the First Thessalonians 5.16 reference. Being watchful involves living out body life as instructed. In 5.12-15, we see instructions regarding proper attitudes towards spiritual leaders as well as how the body should interact with one another in terms of both accountability and encouragement. Now in 5, 16 through 22, Paul adds to that some rapid-fire exhortations regarding Christian living and concludes with some additional body-life exhortations related to the ministry of the Word. Notice he says, 
Long verse, right? <laughs> rejoice, rejoice always. Wow. Uh, mere happiness as found in the world is based on circumstances. It's self-oriented. In contrast, biblical joy is God-centered. It is the disposition of having a song in your heart to God. To rejoice is to celebrate God and what we are and have in Him. Joy focuses on the promises and the glorious hope we have in Christ. Rejoice always. Next page. Down to 517. Pray without ceasing. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Uh, Pray is a general word that simply means to speak to God. It encompasses all aspects of prayer, confession, request, intercession, praise, thanksgiving. Prayer is an expression of dependence upon God. It is a means of expressing worship. Uh, Without ceasing was commonly used in reference to a nagging cough. As such, it denotes activity that is constant or consistent. It does not mean nonstop verbal talking. This word is used in reference to prayer in 1, 2, and 2.13. And in neither case does it mean perpetual verbal prayer without a break. Rather, the idea is that prayer is to be an ongoing way of life. A spirit of constant prevailing prayer is to govern the life. Top of page 85. Prayer has been compared to the pilot of an airplane and his connection with the authority in the airport tower. The pilot is in constant contact with the tower, but that does not mean he is talking all the time, right? So that's the spirit here. We are to live in a spirit of constant communion with God. We are to handle life in all of its varied facets with prayer. Verse 18. In everything give thanks. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Uh, Notice this does not say for everything give thanks, but in everything give thanks. This is not telling us to be thankful for tragedy, misfortune, hardship, or the effects of human sinfulness. Rather, it is telling us that no matter what our circumstances are, there are still things that we can be thankful for in that context. Uh, Skip uh, the next uh, verse there and the next paragraph. Come down to the bottom of the page. When Paul says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, Many commentators believe he is referencing all three directives in verses 16 through 18. In other words, the will of God for all believers is to rejoice always, to pray unceasingly, and to give thanks in everything. Uh, Page 86. Uh, This is the will of God for you. He has uh, emphasized several things here. Come down to the the bold there. Um, Paul has made very clear in in this book that it is the will of God to abstain from sexual immorality. And now, to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and every give, everything give thanks. So this is the will of God for us, as, as his people, as brought out in the book. Under that, uh, if a believer, if, if as a believer you are doing these things, I'm pretty confident that God is going to be very pleased with you when he reviews your life on Judgment Day. Of course, this is not to negate the other commandments given in the book or the rest of the New Testament. But it is to say that if you are serious about these commands, you are probably serious about the others too, such as loving one another, reaching out to the lost with the gospel. While there is overlap, verses 16 through 18 form a cluster related to proper attitudes and practice that is mainly personal. Verses 19 through 22 form a cluster related to obedience and discernment that is mainly congregational in orientation. So let's go to the next page, page 87, top of the page. The fact that these verses are essentially addressing the whole congregation is important in gaining a proper understanding of what is being said. Notice what he says here, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Do not quench the Spirit. The word quench means to put out, extinguish, stifle, smother, or suppress. Um, Next paragraph. Certainly, all of the previous instruction in the book regarding body life may be in view as the Spirit works in his people in relation to love and holiness, and God's people should not throw a wet blanket on it. However, I think there is a cluster emphasis here, even as we saw in 16 through 18. Therefore, verse 19 would seem to be closely related to verse 20. That being the case, quenching the Spirit in verse 19 is closely related to despising the Word, not despising the Word, in verse 20. That is the immediate context. Remember, all the verses in this cluster are second-person plural, meaning you, the congregation, don't do this. Uh, come down to, uh, towards the bottom there, just above the Bob DeWay quote. Anytime the ministry of the Word is diminished, the Spirit's work is quenched. Uh, 
wherever you have a church that no longer takes, uh, makes the teaching of the word a priority, the spirit is at best being quenched. Where you have people that want the truth watered down, the spirit is quenched. Where you have a congregation that replaces the ministry of the word with man-centered programs, you have a quenching of the spirit. Uh, so when he says, do not quench the spirit, I'm going to take that with the next verse, and we'll get to that. Uh, let's go there. Let's go to the next page, page 88, and jump down to verse 20. Do not despise prophecies. Do not despise prophecies. Now, the charismatics really like this verse, right? And you can understand why. But let me explain this just a little bit. Before the New Testament was complete in the days of the apostles, in which uh, Paul is writing fairly early in the church age yet, um, before the, the New Testament was complete in the days of the apostles in the early church, God granted the gift of prophecy to certain people. To prophesy was to receive direct revelation from God. It involved both foretelling and forthtelling. It was a miracle. It was supernatural. One did not have to prepare for it. Uh, God simply gave the message spontaneously. The prophets served as a close associates to the apostles. Prophets are listed second in terms of importance in New Testament giftedness, right behind the apostles. Both the apostles and the prophets had revelatory ministries. That is, both gave forth new revelation prior to the completion of the New Testament canon. Both apostles and prophets are said to be foundational to the church. That is to say, the church is built upon the foundation of the new revelation they brought forth. And so uh, note uh, our reference here. In Ephesians 2, it talks about uh, the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Of course, Christ is himself the chief cornerstone. But this is, they're foundational. And in what sense? Well, you go on into the next chapter. He talks about revelation, which in other ages, church truth, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by his spirit to his holy apostles and their close associates, the prophets. So the foundation here relates to what's being revealed. Apostles and prophets are the foundation for the new truth that is now being revealed. And we build on their foundation. You don't keep building the foundation century after century after century. You build on that revelatory foundation that they laid. So note 89, page 89. However, being foundational means that these ministries were temporary, right? One does not continue to lay a foundation. No, once the foundation is laid, then the superstructure is built upon it. The early church context in which the apostles and prophets gave forth new revelation that became New Testament was foundational and temporary. The prophets were linked with the apostles. As sure as the apostles were temporary, so were the prophets. They are linked together. Middle of the page. As such, I am what is called a cessationist, right? This means I'm going to cease now and desist. <laughs> no, <clears throat> that is, I believe, the supernatural gifts associated with supernatural revelation as found in the apostles and prophets have ceased by virtue of fulfillment of purpose. I believe the Bible is complete. And those that claim to have additional revelation are false prophets, uh, when someone says, I have been to heaven and am now returning with additional truth, I say they're a false prophet, etc., etc. All truth was given to the apostles. I mean, that's what Christ said in John 16, verse 13. The Spirit would guide them, the apostles, into all the truth. Right, even in the early days of the church, note there, since the early days in the church, there's always been those who claim to speak for God, but they are bogus. Always have those very boldly step forward and say, I have a message from God. Boy, that really makes you somebody important, right? It seems to. But in Revelation 2, verse 2, it says, Christ addressing the church at Ephesus, I know your works, labor, patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. We need to do that. Yeah. We need to test those who say they are apostles. And we have those very boldly on the scene now in the church saying, I'm an apostle. Well, what are you saying? Have you seen the risen Christ? Let's start there. They might say yes. Uh, you know, they're, they're liable to say anything. But anyway, we need to put them to the test. All right, page 90, top of the page. So when Paul says to those in the early church, do not despise prophecies, he is saying do not despise the word of God as given through his special messengers who are legitimately bringing forth New Testament truth. Since there are no more prophecy being given today, this verse speaks to us only in the form of application. By application, it says to us, do not despise the giving forth of God's word. 
which is what prophecy was. Thus saith the Lord. God gives the person a message and he prophesies. It's, it's the word of God through a person uh, prophesying it. When God's word is accurately given forth, it is not to be despised. To despise means to treat with contempt, to look down upon. Next paragraph. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise his word. Instead, be open to God's word. Whatever God tells you through the word, be pliable and obedient. We don't need any more prophecies. What we need to do is apply those that God has already given us. Verse 21, test all things. You see, this is a cluster here. It all flows. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. To test means to examine as one would examine money to see if it's counterfeit. It is to test with the hope of approving. This is discernment. It is a present tense command, meaning we are to constantly be doing this. The command here is to be discerning. We are to sift whatever is proclaimed as the word of God. And then if it is good, we are to hold fast to it. To hold fast is to embrace wholeheartedly, to retain it. Uh, Jump down to the bottom of the page. In reality, as Christians, we need to be critical thinkers. We are to weigh and evaluate everything. Now, don't misunderstand. Verse, uh, verse, page 91. Not inspired, by the way. Uh, Page 91. There is a difference between being a critical thinker in the sense of biblical discernment and having a critical spirit. A critical spirit is just critical, but critical thinking evaluates what is being said up against the objective word of God. This verse shows that everyone is accountable and responsible to do their own thinking. He's talking to the whole congregation. Uh, test all things. The whole congregation is to test all things. If the spiritual teaching is good, hold on to it. But if not, then verse 22 applies. Abstain from every form of evil. In the Greek, there's a play on words here. Abstain literally means to hold oneself away from. So on the one hand, we are to hold on to what is good. But on the other hand, we are to hold ourselves away from every form of evil. Evil means that which is destructive or harmful. It stands in contrast to what is good in verse 21. There are many forms of evil, but especially in view in context is the issue of doctrinal evil, which is to say false teachings. So, regarding the ministry of the word, one, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise God's revelation. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from what is destructive, uh, what is evil. All right, we now come to the conclusion of Paul's letter, which is essentially benediction and some parting instructions. Verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul often at the close of his letters emphasizes God as the God of peace. As Paul thinks in reference to believers, he doesn't think of God as being an angry being. He doesn't think of God as being hostile. No, we know him as the God of peace. In salvation, we have come to have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. The very gospel is called by Paul the gospel of peace. However, the setting here is not so much salvation as that of Christian living in relationship to sanctification. As believers who have peace with God on the basis of faith in Christ... We can also know the peace of God through prayer in our daily experience. Uh, Let's go to page 92, middle of the page. And then he states the main point of this verse, asking that, that God himself sanctify you completely. This is his prayer for these people. Throughout the book, Paul has given a good number of commands, ending up with abstain from every form of evil. How can this be done? Well, not in our own strength. We need God's help to live out holiness. God is the change agent. Spiritual change ultimately happens because of his work and influence in our lives. So really what you have in verse 23, I think, is a prayer wish, a prayerful desire that God would work out holiness in the lives of these believers. Uh, Next paragraph. Himself is in, in the emphatic first position, emphasizing that God must do this. Paul constantly strikes a balanced emphasis. Yes, he instructs believers on how to live, but then in balance, he emphasizes that God must do it. We see that here. In verse 23, he tells them to abstain, but here in verse 23, he calls on God to sanctify them. Uh, Skip the uh, reference there. The word sanctify is the Greek word hagiadzo, which means to be set apart or to be consecrated to God. It means to be holy. 
And again, by way of review, in terms of sanctification, there is positional sanctification, and that never changes. Who we are in Christ, as cleansed forever, never changes. But then there's progressive sanctification as we are becoming more like Christ. And then one day our practice will match our position in perfected sanctification when we are in glory. Okay, next page, page 93. Second paragraph. And then Paul enlarges on what he means saying, And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Be preserved means to be kept. Uh, The prayer is that God would do this, actively sanctify them, and then preserve them in that sanctification. Uh, I'll put the slide up here, but we're not going to look at that tonight. Okay, so let's go on. We could talk about spirit, soul, and body and break that down, but you can read that. Next page, page 94, under the uh, 2 Corinthians 5.9 reference. To put this in the common vernacular, Paul is praying that they would be totally sold out to God, that, that in their entire being they would be found set apart for God. Uh, when committed believers died in Thessalonica, they would put on their tombstone blameless. Uh, this has actually been found on some tombs in Thessalonica. That is the goal, to be found blameless, to have Christ be pleased with our lives, to hear him say, well done. Yet, in accordance with my understanding of this verse regarding progressive sanctification, I think it presumptuous for anyone other than God to make that call. Christ is the judge. He alone makes the final call in terms of where we have arrived at in our progressive sanctification process. You might put on my tombstone, hopefully blameless. We'll see. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Maybe come up with something else. Indeed, uh, we will see, which is why Paul prayed for them in this way, right? I mean, he's praying to that end for them. Okay, let's go to page 95. And uh, notice Paul has in view the the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the, the parousia when believers will be in the very presence of Christ at his coming. This is the time of the, the rapture. Taken in total, the scriptures teach that at the time, at that time, the true character of believers will be revealed. That is the prayer concern of verse 23. But at the same time, the sanctification process will then be complete, right? When we arrive, finally. And uh, we will enter at that time into the perfection where we are Christ-like. That is the emphasis of verse 24. Who, he who calls you is faithful who will also do it. Well, if he's going to do it, do I have to do it? Well, there is human responsibility. That's why he's telling you to do to and praying to that end. Uh, God's call to believers is always shown to be effectual. Uh, under the Philippians 1, 6 reference, at the day of Jesus Christ at the rapture, the work will be completed. That is the point here in verse 24. The sanctification process will be seen through and completed. God will do it. Then we will be completely Christ-like. Every last one of us, this will be perfected in eventually. Uh, Verse 25, brethren, pray for us. Uh, You know, Paul recognized a need for prayer. Why did Paul need prayer? I mean, wasn't he already pretty much there? Uh, He didn't think so. Uh, We all need prayer. We're all human. Uh, We need God's help. He asked for prayer. Verse 26, greet the brethren with a holy kiss. We are going to practice this even now. So I have, can I have a couple? No, no. Paul wants to communicate his love to the Christians and he instructs us to be expressed with a holy kiss. Uh, It was common in this Oriental culture to kiss family and friends on the cheek. The church is the family of God. We are to express our love to each other in appropriate ways. I don't take this in a legalistic way. Uh, Certainly, and if you feel the need to do that, you know, maybe come talk to us elders. But anyway, uh, certainly the spirit of what is being said is that Christian love is to be communicated. In our culture, a warm brotherly handshake would normally be the equivalent. Verse 27, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. Charge is a strong word. It's like Paul is putting them under oath and charging them with accountability to do this. Now skip the next uh, Paragraph. The point is made that Paul was dead serious about this being read before all the brethren. Clearly saw it as being of utmost importance. All right, next page, page 97. Where was the naysayer who didn't think we were going to get through this? Andrew, Andrew. Verse 28. 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Paul commonly began and ended his letters with an emphasis on grace. Paul began in First Thessalonians, Thessalonians by saying, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he concludes by saying, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Uh, next page, uh, page uh, 98. And uh, I'm going to, uh, yeah, we, we'll just finish out here. Uh, overview of First Thessalonians there. The theme is the day of Christ, Christ coming for the church, which we have seen. Chapter 1, the Thessalonians' glorious conversion. Chapter 2, Paul and his co-workers' evangelistic ministry in Thessalonica. Chapter 3, his follow Timothy's follow-up ministry report. Chapter 4, exhortation to holy living and instruction on the rapture. And then chapter 5, how the rapture relates to the day of the Lord and exhortations to holy living. So that takes us through uh, 1 Thessalonians. Uh, I guess appropriately we could end with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. All right. Any questions? We have 30 seconds. Andrew doesn't have a question tonight. He has no 30-second questions. <laughs> All right. I'm glad you could come out tonight. We're going to get into 2 Thessalonians tomorrow. And, uh, you know, the emphasis on, in 1 Thessalonians is the rapture and how that corresponds or how that interrelates with the coming day of the Lord. Now, 2 Thessalonians is about the day of the Lord. And they still were not clear on some things. So he has to come back and give further instruction. And so we'll take a look at that as we get into tomorrow and Friday. Lord, again, we thank you for the opportunity to study. I pray it would be profitable as we continue to uh, uh, muse over these things, consider these things, and continue to uh, uh, take them into our hearts. And as we think about uh, where we live in the church age and how we ought to be living, uh, Lord, the instructions are very clear as far as even what is your specific will in terms of our attitude uh, towards authority, uh, towards life, as far as rejoicing, praying, and everything give thanks and so forth. So, Lord, help us to, indeed, apply these truths to our lives as we await the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.